Hello everybody, this is Andre and you are on the Marketing Innovation Show. On today's episode, we have Bruce Eckfeld from the US, uh, who is the CEO of the US-based firm Ecofit and Associates. Uh, he's a scale-up business coach and an Inc.Dot author and CEO. Hi Bruce, how's life? How's everything going? Hi Andre, just fine. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome, awesome. Really looking forward to our episode together. This is going to be a very insightful and interesting uh, talk. So guys tuning in, today we will discuss um, marketing in the context of scaling up businesses and we will mm -hmm. focus more on the service businesses as well because, because this is where Bruce has a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he also runs a podcast on this, um, on this niche, which we will yeah. link in the description. Awesome. Uh, and yes, very exciting times. So Bruce, uh, tuning in from the US early morning for you, right? Yeah, no, well, it's 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 pretty reasonable. I've done earlier, but uh, yeah, I know it's it's always difficult figuring out coordinating international uh, calls and court and uh, meetings. Uh, well, this is the world we live in, so <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we are we are adapting to it. Uh, so let's see. Uh, let's um, let's get the ball rolling. Tell us a bit more about you, about uh, where you started, how you you developed your career, and some of the interesting projects that you maybe are working on at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so while well, I started life as an architect professionally, I started life as an architect, um, did a couple of degrees at McGill University in Montreal, um, ended up getting recruited into the technology space after a couple of years in the, in the world. I was doing a lot of computer modeling and animation, and uh, it was just a kind of a natural transition for me to focus on kind of digital technology and product development. And uh, So I got very involved in product strategy, digital strategy, spent many years with um, I did stuff for the Met Museum of Modern Art here in New York, uh, WebMD, a lot of the big kind of um, uh, dot coms, as well as the uh, you know, company like Motorola, helping them kind of figure out how to leverage digital technologies in their business early in the kind of internet uh, days. Uh, and then started a tech company back in 2002, uh, mm -hmm. lean agile software development. So I got more kind of uh, steeped in the actual uh, code uh, software process, process of things. Uh, sold that a couple of years ago and have uh, transitioned into a, a basically a strategic coach. So I work with CEOs and their leadership teams on growth strategy. And I work on a range of industries, but services is a big one for me. And I, as you mentioned, I run a podcast called Scaling Up Services. And it's all about how, how do we grow service-based businesses because there's some unique challenges. It's a different business model. Um, there's there's some, I'd like to say they're, they're easy to start and they're hard to scale. Uh, so that's kind of uh, what we tackle on the podcast. And yeah, and marketing obviously is a big part of that, really, got, really understanding how, how do you go to market with these, these things. And that's the only way you're really going to grow the company. Mm -hmm. Super. Very much looking forward to our chat here because uh, us as well as our service-based business. So if we yeah. can find some, <laughs> some secrets from here, that'd be awesome. Um, okay, super. So uh, just to, get, uh, to give you a feel of our listeners here. So um, many people are from the marketing and sales space, uh, marketing and sales leaders, but we have a bunch of entrepreneurs here as well either already running their businesses or looking at starting and scaling up their businesses. So I think, um, obviously, we are more a marketing-focused podcast, but we tackle a lot of other business aspects that go with it uh, yep. as well. Um, tell us a bit about how you see marketing fitting in when looking at a business and looking at exploring ways to, yeah. to scale it up. Yeah. So I, I guess I kind of... Uh, discuss or, or describe marketing as being that that function, those activities that you do that are going to generate qualified sales leads, right? The things, the things that are going to create these kind of inbound interests at various levels of uh, kind of readiness to buy, but it's about 
creating that demand, creating that, those inbound leads that I can then put into a sales process, which is really about moving them through a decision-making process, a, a proposal, a scoping, you know, getting them down to some kind of signed contract or signed engagement. Um, I, I, honestly, I think most companies really don't do marketing <laughs> from a, certainly in sales and in, in service companies. Um, and so, uh, you know, re really looking at marketing, I mean, they'll do, they'll do sort, all sorts of activities that sort of generate leads, but in terms of really marketing, I don't think most companies uh, approach it, certainly not strategically for, for me, the, the first thing is marketing is based on some kind of target customer, right? Like you have to have a strategic definition of who your core customer, your ideal customer, your target customer is. Um, cause, cause that is, that is, if, if you're not focusing on, on some way, shape, or form, it's just, a, it's just not going to be effective, right? You can't market to everybody. Like you need to decide who you're going to market to. It also is it, it, it doesn't really become a measurable uh, tool, right? Because it's basically, then you're just talking about awareness building and it's, you know, that can happen all sorts of ways um, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, thought leadership. Like I can go present at conferences and things like that that would be generating potentially some sales leads, but unless you're really tied into some kind of strategic definition of core customer, I would say that's really not marketing per se. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing is like, you have to have a core customer, you have to have some kind of definition of your target, and then you've got to have some kind of strategy, some kind of what, how are we different in the world uh, relative to the companies that do the things we do? Because uh, you need to position yourself in your marketing. Marketing is not just, hey, rah, rah, we're great. Mm -hmm. Marketing is, hey, this is how we're different than anyone else. And if you, if you are like this, then we should be a clear and obvious choice for you. That, that's mm -hmm. real good strategic marketing from my point of view. That fits into the broader kind of corporate strategy and ultimately the kind of the broader scaling strategy for a company. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, if uh, let's say somebody wants to look at their marketing budgets and maybe scale them or review the channels that they are using, probably the best place for them to start would be to go back to who they thought their customers were in the beginning, see if that still matches what they think would be a good customer today, and then looking at how to get in front of them most effectively and then to position themselves as you know in line with the type of customers they want, right? Yeah, I, I would. I mean, generally, with my clients, we'll 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 do an annual strategic review process, which is pretty in depth, and, and it does requestion. It kind of goes back and validates, you know, our target customer, and it may have shifted, right? So, uh, the market can shift, competitors could shift, uh, you know, the world can change. It's changing a lot right now, uh, and uh, and therefore my definition, of my target customer can change. One of the best ways I find to identify a target customer or, or pieces of input into your target customer definition is look at your last three years of customers and uh, rank order them on a, a three-part score. Who is a pleasure to serve? Who, who is profitable? And who promotes you to other businesses, mm -hmm. right? If you can score your current customer list on those three criteria, equal weighting, and then look at the top 5%, that, that is a great way to begin to identify who your core customer is. Basically, who do you serve well and who do you profit from uh, is going to be, uh, is going to really be insightful. And then what I want to do is figure out I want to use those. I want to. I want to look at those people, and I want to look at how are they different from everyone else, and use that to define my core customer, so that I can figure out my marketing strategy. Got you. And then uh, when you say that many co uh, companies not re they don't really do marketing in the way that they should, is that maybe they don't go so much in depth anymore after the first stage of planning marketing when they are planning activities, and they just basically go in blind a bit without knowing exactly what these five percent of the companies or the people 
would be looking for? Yeah, so I think a couple of things, if, if, if I were to be able to uh, give a, my stamp of approval that someone is, is approaching marketing strategically, um, one, one is they have, a, they have a definition of their core customer that, that really is a, a, a decisive set of criteria that make them different from every other customer. Like people will say, oh, well, my target customer pays on time. Okay, well, I mean, a lot of customers pay on time, right? So unless you're telling me that all your bad customers or you're not, uh, other customers in the world don't pay on time and someone else might want those, I, like it, it's got to be something that I'm going to differentiate on. It's going to, it's going to, that, that is going to be different from everyone else, but someone else could choose the other side and it still works, right? They're, they're decisive. We, while we, we appreciate all these kind of attributes, these are the ones that are really going to define for us. So I think that's one. Two is they have to have some kind of positioning. They have to, they have to say, look, we are different from all the competitors in this space in this way. If they can't answer that very well, and if, and if it's, different than price. <laughs> like we can all say, oh, well, I can, I can charge less. Nah, that's a race to a bottom, right? Like we don't want to be in a price war. We want to be in a position where we can charge premium prices. The only way we're going to do that is have it be clearly differentiated in a couple of meaningful ways for our target customer. The lastly is I talk about channel strategy. So all of all marketing has to be done through some kind of channel. All lead generation happens through some kind of channel. And I have to make, for, for, unless you're, 100 million or maybe 50 million dollars and, and bigger, you're better off really double downing on one or two key channels than trying to, you know, go to the trade shows, do SEO, uh, do email campaigns, you know, try guerrilla tactics, do affiliate marketing. Like if you're doing more than one or two of those things and you're not 50 million dollars, you're probably doing all of them poorly, right? I'd rather see you do one or two really, really well than you trying to like all these, I mean, if you're in experimentation mode, you may need to gather some data in which case, great, like do a bunch of experiments, but for the purposes of choosing one or two that you're really going to leverage and you're really going to double down on, not that you're going to continue to do all those different channel strategies. Mm -hmm. Got you. Um, I remember from our previous conversation that you mentioned yeah. uh, one way that your clients see you is that you are the guy that gets them from a couple million per year to a couple hundred million per year. Yeah. So uh, that's very impressive. And I was curious to um, find mainly in the service business since we, as mentioned, we are in the service business and we also see that, you know, compared to a tech business where you can just... Yeah. Uh, get a business more and more profitable if you run it well uh, with the revenue uh, you tend to you know get to a level in services where the profit margin is not necessarily growing with the growth mm -hmm. in revenue so um, how do you tackle that or what are some strategies that maybe our listeners could use or could think of uh, in order to ensure that when they grow their revenue they are also looking at growing their profit margin or the profitability yeah. Uh, so two things I would say we focus on when we're scaling service-based companies. One is you, you got to choose, right? You got to you got to really zero in on what is the core service that you offer and really focus on that. I, I think most of the times what I'm running into is there's a, a too much of a, a a wide range of service offerings, and they're trying to provide a really broad set of offerings, and it just dilutes everything. And if you really want to scale the business, you've got to narrow this down into what is the core service that you offer, and how can you really standardize that and operationalize that so that I can do that again and again and again with confidence, with precision, with discipline, 
uh, and with profitability, right? And, and that is one of the ways you're going to really grow your profitability is by doing the same thing again and again, because you're going to operationalize it. You're going to optimize how you do it. You're going to make sure that those people, you're going to get the most out of your people, meaning that if I have a wide range of services, I need very diverse talent and that diverse talent is going to be expensive. Mm-hmm. But the problem is I'm not lever- I'm not always leveraging all that diversity all the time. So my profitability is going to be quite low versus if I have a very standard service that is repeatable, I can basically not have to hire quite as senior and quite as diverse, quite as generalist, multifaceted folks. I can, I can hire really targeted folks and I can really leverage the value that I'm, uh, I'm paying for them. Right. So that is one way that I'm really going to scale the, the business and I'm going to scale, um, uh, profitability. Uh, the other thing, uh, is really kind of digging into that core customer is like it, it, the more that we are really focused on serving a particular type of person, the more value we're going to create, which means the more profit we're going to have and the easier it is to service them. So again, we're going to get back to really making sure that the service is delivered consistently and easily. Right. so I, I just say, you know, the faster you want to scale, the more you need to focus, right? It really comes down to, to that strategy. Mm-hmm. To basically dominating the niche rather than being efficient yeah. of the I mean, uh, there's, I will say maybe there's another little dirty secret about scaling service companies is that, it, in fact, you kind of want to think like a product company, right? Like you want to think about how do you turn your service into a product at some level, meaning that it's, it's very defined, it's very, uh, this is the input, this is the output, these are the stages to it. Um, you know, in, in some cases, you're actually building product components. And uh, so if you have you know, things that normally you would do through service and you can figure out how to create programs, systems, uh, you know, th- things that will automatically generate some of that stuff for you, especially, particularly at the low level, um, you know, it's going to make it easier. You're, you're going to operationalize, you're going to systematize the, the work that you do. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of think like a, think like a product company. Mm-hmm. Very good insight. Um, and actually, we can see maybe, uh, I think this is applicable in the service business where they are digitalizing a bit more uh, in order to mm-hmm. create workflows and I guess processes, as you mentioned, because uh, when you have the process, then you can multiply that and you can make sure that the quality is still there at a sort of yeah. the same level, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at like law, accounting, like all of those industries over the last 10, 15 years, it's all been about how do I create systems? I mean, in some cases, it's how do I systematize this so that I can find, you know, resources from other parts of the world that I'm paying a fraction of the cost for that can still do the work, right? But I've got the, the infrastructure, the guidelines, the SOPs and everything to, re- to still deliver this on a consistent, dependable quality level. In some cases, it's actually software. I mean, in some cases, they've actually created software that will do the analysis, the checking, do the research, do the do the aggregation of stuff, and actually create you know ninety percent of what you need. Ninety percent of the document will actually be created by a software system that then an expert can go in and just do the last ten percent. I mean, these, these industries are being product. These service industries are being productized as you know as things go on, and it's it's really that cream, that top five percent, ten percent of the work that needs to get done by an expert human that. You know that that's where the service component is now, but it's backed by systems and procedures and SOPs and technology. Mm-hmm. Super. Um, and I'm not sure whether this is classified or not, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
would be would be really nice if uh, we could explore some of the success stories that you saw or that you were part of, because um, I'm sure that you get a lot of insight into the businesses that you work with. And even if we don't give names, I think it would be interesting if we could take an industry or uh, one of your clients in a specific niche, and then we could uh, explore the way that maybe they have looked at marketing or used marketing specifically digital, if you have that sort of insight and you can share it, uh, in order to amplify their growth uh, or set the right KPIs that they can then uh, optimize yeah, um, I think that, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of examples we could talk about, but in terms of the marketing side, I think the most interesting ones that I've worked with, um, uh, so this was mar- um, basically mar- marketing services around a very specific industry um, where they they realized that uh, the, the, lead, the, the lead qualification process was taking a lot of time and energy. And so... They, they basically what would happen is they would start talking to a company. They you know they'd have a series of meetings. They craft a proposal, and then you know they would get to these final stages, and then it would kept falling down. Like their conversion rate at the end, the conversion rate was very good in the beginning, and then it would fall off. And uh, by flipping around and looking at what were the reasons that they 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 were falling off that very tail, and how could we move those decisions to the very front, became the way to kind of invert that funnel. So most sales processes, you know, everything goes along and a lot of things falls out the end. We actually want a lot of things to fall out in the beginning mm-hmm. so that we can focus on those things that are going to continue. So in this case was a whole, um, you know, kind of a web uh, survey uh, qualification process that was highly automated. So rather than having an in-person meeting very quickly up front, they forced the client through this process in the very beginning, which had a very high correlation to future success. So while it dropped a lot of folks in the beginning, you know, filling out some web forms, uh, having to answer some questions, pulling together some research, a lot of people fell off, but the right people fell off. And the people that made it through were both a good good quality lead, but they also proved that they really wanted to do this and they were, they were highly, uh, they, they were really committed to doing the work. All right, so by 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 using these kind of tools and technologies to make companies make prospects do work beforehand, really helped increase the the productivity of the funnel. Um, another one that I saw really well was a, a big that it was a big technology company we were working with. So they provide um, uh, uh, basically software kind of you know development services, consulting services around software, um, and their projects are. Yeah, average project size is probably $225,000, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are not small deals. And the problem was that these deals were taking a long time. They, you know, they would win on one out of every three, um, you know, but it was just, it, it was, it was a hard slog. And so what we did, what we did is we went through their best customers. We identified one of the key pain points that they had was scoping these projects in the very beginning and do kind of risk analysis. Mm-hmm. So came up with an early stage offering. Uh, it was like a two-day, three-day workshop that they could put the client through, which gave them a very valuable risk plan associated with the project they were trying to undertake. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, fixed price it, right? Because they knew they could kind of get through the workshop in two or three days. They knew how much it, it, it was. I mean, it, they made money on it. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was really a, a marketing effort, not a project. Mm-hmm. And it did a couple of things. One, it it really verified that these folks are really willing to spend money on this because half the time they got to the final number and it was just too much. And so they would, wouldn't do it. So if they're not willing to spend at least ten, twenty thousand $20,000 on this upfront early stage assessment, 
they're probably not going to be wanting to invest that kind of money later in the process. It also gave them, it basically developed, developed a relationship, right? So it, it gave them a chance to work together and really see how this company operated, what their what their style was, and if it was a good fit. And honestly, it was a fit both ways. You know, the company could see whether or not it was going to work out. Like, is this a good cultural fit? Um, and so by putting this early in the process and making that part of the marketing effort, it was like, how do we... How do we take these inbound leads, all these kind of potential things we have, and, and actually service that and promote that? It gave them a great funnel of then highly qualified leads that made it farther down the pipe. Um, I mean, the other ones that I, I mean, I, you know, the content marketing has been big, I would think, the last five, 10 years. Uh, some of the better content marketing stuff I've seen is, uh, you know, things like podcasting, things like webinars, things like the, the being the panel, this, you know, pulling together the panel discussions and, being kind of the thought leader, positioning themselves as a thought leader, um, have been great tools uh, for a lot of the companies I've worked with, particularly around kind of the higher end professional services so that they are seen as kind of this halo effect of industry leader. I think those have been really effective. Um, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Gabriel Weinberg's uh, traction, not the EOS traction, but Gabriel Weinberg's traction and looking at the, the 19 different channels by which companies generally generate leads. So I would call that marketing. I think marketing strategies you can use, and it's everything from Content marketing to SEO to SEM to uh, uh, guerrilla marketing, uh, affiliates, uh, business development. You know, so that I, I will run clients through that 19 channel strategy worksheet and uh, re really just investigate all the things they're doing or not doing and where we want to spend time. So that's another great resource I find for folks. Mm -hmm. Super. Thanks a lot. So basically here I have a question, uh, which I think yeah. might be in the minds of um, some of our listeners as well. Um, I very much agree to the fact that you need to filter the leads well so that you can invest time and effort and money uh, further in the deal process. Uh, but what do you do if the offering on the market is pretty big and then it's somebody that wants to purchase, let's say, a service or is looking for a service provider, but then uh, seeing that they have to put more energy in the case of filling up a questionnaire and going through the you know, like this sort of filtering out process, um, they might be put off and just go with the easier option or uh, asking them in the in the case of the company that was uh, charging potential clients for this upfront, upfront mm -hmm. small projects, uh, being asked to pay money to qualify themselves um, versus just going with a easier option, which would be maybe like a competitor. Do you, have you seen a big impact on this? Uh, you know, like, through these cases that you mentioned of people like maybe potential yeah. qualified leads dropping off or is well, not so I, I think that the, the, the last thing you said there is the key, which is qualified leads dropping off. So I, I think all good marketing should attract highly desirable, basically prospects, and it should actually repel everyone else. Meaning they should, they, they should be discriminatory. They, they should, you know, if, if, if I'm dropping leads, if, or if I'm not getting certain people to sign up to to engage in the process to go through the sales process, and those are not people that I want, that's good, right? Because part part of what I want to do is actually remove those people that are going to take away focus, all right? So if if all the tools, all the techniques you're using, I evaluate each one of them on how well does it attract the people we want to work with and repel the people that we don't, right? It, it it's it's easy. No, I shouldn't say that. Uh, Often the problem is a marketing effort attracts everyone. And now I've got to do the filtering in the sales process. 
And generally it gets expensive, right? Like I move someone to a sales process and I'm talking about calls, I'm talking about meetings, I'm talking about proposals, like all those things are, are, are very costly steps. So part of a really good marketing strategy is that it actually repels those people that I know are not going to be a good fit, right? Either because they're not profitable, they're not a pleasure to work with, they're not going to be a good promoter for us long term, right? So I want to look at each one of those cases. Now, if I have some activity, some part of my marketing process that is repelling people that otherwise would be highly qualified leads, then I got to change it. Like that, that is not an effective marketing step marketing strategy um Mm -hmm. because that that is we want to repel the people we don't want to attract the people we want Mm -hmm. super yeah got you uh i think that this sometimes might require a bit of courage to be you know to be willing to drop off some of your potential leads but i think that in the long run if you are looking at you know maybe scaling marketing budgets to raise the number of inbound leads that you get through marketing activities um, putting up a filter might increase your cost per lead, but as you mentioned, might decrease the other costs that come in the yeah. deal-making process. Well, and, and so oftentimes, I, will, I might even say all the time, but just because I, I can't think of all the, all the times I work, 99% of the time, mm-hmm. yes, your, your cost per qualified lead is going to go up, but your cost of sales will go down and your customer, long-term customer value will increase and your profitability will increase, right? So it's a trade-off. I, I, I say, I mean, anyone who comes to me and that wants to scale their business, whether it's service or otherwise, you know, unless you're willing to make some hard decisions, whether it's about your customers, about your marketing strategy, about your employees, about which services you're offering, about, you know, everything about scaling a business is making tough choices. But the better you make the tough choices and the better you focus, the more successful you're going to be at scaling the business fast, quickly. Mm-hmm. Super. Sounds good. Thank you. Easy. It's just, it's that easy. Just do that and it's all fine. You'll make tons of money. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So now looking at, uh, cause we talked about these cases and now, um, looking at the specific channels and maybe some of the things that have changed over the last, let's say four months or even mm-hmm. in yep. 2020, um, what have you seen as a general feel within the companies that you are working in? Uh, were they moving more uh, marketing budgets onto sales? Were they uh, changing their approach to marketing into a more thought leadership slash content marketing approach? Uh, have, have you seen any of these things happening at least, you know, in the UK, in the U S yeah, um, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think the, uh, any company who hasn't made some kind of adjustment to their business the last, you know, four months or five months, um, something's wrong. <laughs> like, I mean, the world has changed, right? So you're going you're gonna to have to make some adjustments. The question is, if you're making little tweaks, uh, you know, if you're really pivoting, or whether you're completely rethinking your business model, you know, that's really the question and kind of the challenges that most of the companies have faced. And, and generally, when I'm working with folks the last, um, you know, through, through this last four or five months, has been, the first question is, what's changed with your customers, right? This understanding what, how has the world changed for your customers? And and what are they worried about? What are they focused on? What do they need right now? Because the fact is, is the thing, the thing that you provided before may have been super valuable in the end of 19, but in this world of, you know, July of 2020, that could be really different now. And so, A, you have to assess what are your customer needs? And then it's like, okay, well, is what we do still valuable to them? And if not, 
do we need to tweak, right? Do, do we need to change this somehow because of how the business has changed for our customers? Do we need to pivot, meaning we need to really, maybe we need to think about a different core customer. Maybe we need to think about a different core service that we're offering them. Like we really need to shift mm-hmm. and have a whole thing on, you can shift products or you, you can you can shift what you do and you can shift who you do it for, but you can't shift them both at the same time, right? So there's a whole pivoting kind of philosophy strategy that I have around this, but you need to look at both of those dimensions inside where the opportunities are, or, or do you need to re, re, just completely rethink your business model? Like if, if, if what you do right now is no longer relevant or is not going to be relevant for a significant period of time, like, do I need to do something else? Do I need to recreate the business model? A lot of this has to do with the strategic assessment. You know, we call it, uh, you know, envisioning the future. What are the next 12, 24, 36 months look like? And, in some cases, it's, hey, you know what, in, in 36 months, my business is fine, right? What I do is back in demand where, you know, should be fine, assuming that we've got vaccines, all that kind of stuff. Like this whole situation we're in is more or less resolved and my business is still there. Then it's a question of how do I survive, right? How do I get from now to 36 months? If at 36 months you realize, you know what, the world's just changed, right? What I do is no longer going to be really in need or not the way it is. What I do now is not going to be the most valuable thing in the world, and I need to change. Then I need to figure out what that new vision is going to be, and then how do I you know, survive, but how do I survive in a way that's going to evolve me to where I need to be? I always use the I'm a big, I'm a, I grew up in Minnesota. I went to school in Canada, so I'm a big hockey guy. So um, Wayne Gretzky, one of the great hockey players, you know, always said the reason, one of the things that makes him such a great hockey player is he always skated to where the puck was going to be. Right. He was never chasing the puck. He was figuring out strategically, oh, okay, I see. Based on what's happening here, the puck is going to be here, and I need to get there, and I, I, I'm in the right spot when the puck gets there. That's what you need to do with the business. And in order to do that, you need to make some guesses about where the world's going to go. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, equally, this can apply to the marketing strategy. Like, what are people Absolutely. most likely to be interested in two months down the line? And then I, I'll, uh, if, if your business, if your marketing was run through trade shows, like you are, you need to figure something else out for the next 36 months because that world of trade shows is not going to happen in the same way. In fact, I would say it's forever changed, right? Mm-hmm. The things that are going to happen in the next 36 months for trade shows are going to permanently change the whole concept of how people do trade shows. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the trade show business, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, we saw a lot of movement there uh, with the yeah. trade shows and event organizers. Many of them have started to integrate more technology. I found out about uh, recently, uh, it's a product that was not yet launched, but there was a company in the UK producing a platform that was allowing you to run networking events and conferences. And every person that was in the public and was paying a yep. ticket online, they could just speak with the people next to them so that uh, they, they couldn't chat, uh, like sitting in a virtual room. Yep. Uh, and then yep. they were moving around, but then obviously employing technology and algorithms here so that they can replicate to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of companies do this. And I think, you know, this first reaction is simulate. Like, how do, can we simulate a physical trade show experience online? And I get it. But ultimately, I think the the winners in this space are going to be people that fundamentally rethink, well, the, what is the point of a trade show? How can we leverage technology and the virtualization of this stuff to create a fundamentally new model for how we kind of run a quote-unquote trade show using these things? I think those are going to be the big winners. And I think because you're going to have some of this stuff in the future, there's going to be much more of these kind of blended physical, virtual 
kind of events where, you know, whether it's at the show, I've got, you know, virtual participants as well. And that's, that's, you know, an integrated process or before and after the lead up and the post, there's going to be a lot more kind of connection and integration and, um, you know, community around those things. I, I just, that's why I say, I think that the trade show world is forever changed. We'll have some kind of trade shows, but they're not going to look like they looked at the end of 2019. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Agree. Okay, and moving into, I mean, we are already in, uh, in <laughs> talking about today, but yeah. even more. What's um, what's a project that you are working on at the moment that gets you really excited about the way that they are presenting themselves to the world, and why? I mean, why do you see that working in the way that they communicate their value proposition or the way that they acquire new clients in a world where it might be harder than it used to be to get people yeah. to spend money on services. Yeah, um, so the more, probably the most interesting areas that I'm working in right now. So I, I run a second podcast called Thinking Outside the Bud. It's all about cannabis. Uh, I do a lot of work with cannabis companies and the cannabis industries. And the U.S., they've been declared essential services, so they have actually continued to go. I mean, some of the most interesting things um, that's happening in that industry is the uh, introduction of sort of delivery and this um, – everything to date has been through a dispensary it's through a retail location. Um, mm -hmm. And because of COVID and restrictions and not being able to have people come to physical spaces, they've had to find other ways around this process. And um, people are doing some really interesting kind of business model shifts. Uh, and that's causing some really interesting, um, I'll call it customer acquisition processes uh, because it's a growing industry, because it's no longer, it's not very physical based anymore. Mm -hmm. um, people are finding some interesting ways to do, you know, everything re from referral programs to, uh, you know, promotional efforts uh, through online apps. The, the challenge in the states here is that because it is still federally legal, and don't ask me to explain the whole thing, it's going to take an hour to go through the details of cannabis. But it's federally legal, in the, which means you can't, you get, while you can do business in a state and still be protected, if you do certain things, you run across federal lines and it becomes an issue. So there's some restrictions there. And because of that, things like Google and Facebook do not let you promote. Mm -hmm. cannabis products and services uh, on their platforms. Mm -hmm. So there's been some really crafty things that people have been doing and being able to still market these products, whether it's through other networks, whether it's they're using some things like events and stuff like that to kind of sneak by a little bit of the, the, the people that would block these things on some of these platforms. But the, I would say it's probably some of the more innovative. I mean, it's scrappy, right? Because they're, they're, they're having to kind of be creative around it. Um, but, but, you know, figuring out shadow page or shadow websites and things like that to kind of get, be able to get traffic going and then convert it over. And it's just, it's interesting what they're doing to kind of get around the restrictions, both federal legal restrictions, as well as the platforms have said, Hey, look, we're just not going to deal in this business right now. Mm -hmm. they're, they're figuring out ways of doing it. That, I would say that's probably where the really innovative stuff is happening. Interesting. And uh, I think this is also a very nice exercise because, you know, we have Facebook and Google dominating the whole space. So basically mm -hmm. that's digital 80%. Um, and then it's about figuring out the other, let's say 20% of what you can do uh, mm -hmm. online that can generate you, you know, a very good return on your marketing investment and so on. Yeah. Um, so specifically, did you find any other channels that were nice or interesting for promoting products or services um, in, in this project alone or a parallel one? 
Um, yeah, so I think, um, I mean, in general, the ones that I see working fairly well right now are very content-based, you know, people that are uh, using good quality content uh, as sort of top of funnel, you know, uh, uh, engagement for folks. Um, I mean, I think the really good companies that I see right now that are that are doing this well are, are, are really kind of separating out this kind of uh, uh, audience audience attraction and engagement versus sales. Like they're, they're setting up really good ways of bringing someone into their fold, uh, feeding them a regular dose of good quality content with little hooks that are triggers for when they're really to buy. Because the problem with most of these companies, particularly the depending on the market and how frequent purchases, a lot of the problems is like uh, the actual time of purchase, the actual interest in purchase can be very can, can be very short and and not very frequent, mm-hmm. right? So you know if you're buying a new car, like I'm not running around every day thinking about buying a new car, but when I think about buying a new car, I'm pretty much I'm going to buy it within 30 to 60 days, right? It's like either my car broke down or I'm like finally like, fuck it, I'm just going to get a new car, and and so you need to have this kind of casual relationship going with these little hooks so that when I move into that buy mode, I can quickly move you into a sales process. Uh, and I think people either make the mistake of just kind of sending out content with no hook mm-hmm. or uh, sending out, uh, just just sending out hooks, right? And it's like, I'm not ready to buy, so don't talk to me about buying. So I think the, the really good companies are, are finding creative ways of doing that. Right now, I'm seeing a lot of stuff with, I mean, probably everyone has kind of zoomed out, but I think the webinar stuff had worked pretty well the last couple months. I think there's still opportunities. Uh, I think the, the content series, uh, any, anything that will help create content and connection between folks. Um, uh, I mean, personally, I'm finding actually a lot of CEO roundtables are working really well because people want to, A, they want to talk to, they want strategy, they want to pivot, but they also want to work with some other CEOs. They don't want to, they, they want to see what's going on. They want to really get triangulation of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of stuff is working really well right now. Mm-hmm. Super. So when you mean hooks, you mean sales hooks, like uh, a call to action, right? Yeah. So it's 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 the um, uh, the offer to engage in a conversation, mm-hmm. right? So whereas content market, I'm just like, I'm just giving you good content. The hook is, and, and if you have a question on this, or if you want to explore this, or if you want to do this assessment, or if you want more details, you know, pull in it. And that pull, that hook, should be a qualifier for, hey, this people are now moving into a buying mode. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, so um, one thing that I think would be nice for us to do because we ran through a lot of things and I think there's a lot of value that can be extracted from here, uh, but just to make it easy for the guys that tuned in so far and are probably trying to you know, create action points for them to implement into the business, I think what we can do now is to try to find three or four main points that they can take away and depending on the stage of their business or their objectives in terms of marketing or scale up, uh, they can go and implement these into you know their businesses maybe even this week or at least yep. <laughs> make the yep. first. What what do you think are? So, I, I would say three. Yeah, so I think three three things. You know, if, if anyone's listening here looking to kind of apply some of this this these ideas, I mean, one is this core customer. Really, look at all your core customers. Literally, rank them on a scale of one to ten on easy to serve. Who's a pleasure to serve? Who's profitable? And who promotes you to other folks? That that will that will give you that first pass of oh, I should find more people like this, right? That's going to be your first pass of core customer. Honestly, just doing that, I would probably look at the bottom 5%. And, and I, I, I would, with 95% certainty, said if you just fire those 5%, you're in better shape. Because usually the bottom 5% of your customer customer list is actually costing you money. 
Mm -hmm. because they, they, they're not that profitable and they're taking up a lot of your time and they're not referring you to other folks. If you just ditch them, focused on the remaining 95%, typically you might even go as high as 10 or even 20% on that list. That would be one thing. So just look at your customers and, and uh, rank order them. To really decide what service you're going to focus on. I mean, really go through the services that you're offering. Pick one that you can really double down on, start to systematize. That is going to help you tremendously. Um, and, and then I would look at that uh, kind of the marketing channel stuff. And if you need to do some experiments, but I would you know pick one that you can really get good at. Right. It, it, it's it, trying to do more than one is going to is going to dilute your dilute your efforts too much. Uh, so look at those 19 different channels, pick one that you have the resources you're comfortable in that, you know, your customers are going to be in a buying conversation. And that that's probably the, the if you just do those three things, that's huge. <laughs> and they're not that hard. I mean, they're not easy, but they're not that hard. Can I pick your brains on something now? Uh, because yeah. um, I'm curious to find your point on this. So you mentioned to have only one or two channels and just double down on those ones. Uh, but what do you do in the case of uh, somebody that is maybe in the exploration mode and they are looking at opportunities or options for purchase, but they haven't made an, a decision yet or they are not necessarily yet ready to buy? Um, because us marketeers, when we look at that case, we employ a multi-channel marketing strategy, which means that we try to capture people, you know, through content marketing maybe, and then we deliver content to them, maybe do remarketing on different channels like Facebook or Google, depending on, you know, what we sell. Um, would you think that the value that you get from creating these multiple touch points uh, and compressing, instead of having them, compressing them into one or two channels would be more valuable why i mean do you think that doing something good on one or two channels can raise the effectiveness of your activities or how do you how do you think about it i think it's where you are i mean i would say the multi-channel marketing strategies are, are great for people who have developed good channel market digital channel marketing strategies and are looking to optimize right they've they've only got they've, they've been able to take it so far through a single channel and a multi-channel strategy will enhance that potentially enhance that greatly but they've got to have figured out that multi-channel that the the case that i run into a lot is um you know i'm doing these webinars and i'm doing seo and i do networking and i'm going to the trade show and like they're doing five six seven of these just fundamental different channels and that's where you know that's where they're they're going to dilute their efforts and you know unless you've got major resources in fact, even if you have major resources, if you have a channel that's producing at, you know, 60%, why would you bother investing in a channel that's, yeah, maybe it's producing at 40%, that's not bad, but you got a channel that's producing at 60%, why not just do more of that? I mean, mm -hmm. if you could tell me that uh, I reach capacity, I can't get anything more of that channel, okay, fine, we can have that conversation, but that's rare. Usually, they're just, they're, they don't have a strategy, right? They're just trying a whole bunch of stuff. And once you double down on it. So I think the, the multi-channel digital strategy is certainly a way to optimize some of that stuff. I mean, you may have a case where, you know, a customer, a particular type of customer is impenetrable without a multi-channel strategy. That might be the case. Um, you know, but I think, I think we're dealing with either optimizing processes that, and I think you need to kind of get to a base level with someone before you can really optimize, or, or you're dealing with somewhat of exception. And yeah, every once in a while, there's a interesting strategic situation where you have to apply a multi-channel strategy to get any leads really effectively coming through. But usually I find that most companies are 
struggling just to get the core core channel running uh, before they consider you know multi-channel optimization. Gotcha. So basically, just if you run multi-channel to be sure that you run everything together rather than just pulling out campaigns like one campaign here, one campaign there, and just hope it works. Basically, yeah, it's got to be a co- it's got to be a coordinated multi-channel strategy. Don't use a multi-channel strategy in an incoherent, uh, dis- disassociated way. That's not that's going to be not only a waste of time. It's probably going to confuse your your mm-hmm. customer, your prospect. Agree. Agree with this. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, where people, where, where can people find you? So, uh, if anybody wants to find out more about you, obviously we'll have the links in the description below. But uh, tell us what you are focusing on at the moment. What you think it's uh, it can can be interesting for more people to find out about. And uh, ultimately, if somebody wants to work with you or to specifically pick your brains on something, how is best for them to reach out to you? Yeah. Um, so uh, contact information, just Bruce at Eckfelt.com. So just first name, last name is my email address. Eckfelt.com is my website. It's interesting. I think the thing that has uh, been most effective for me and most interesting for a lot of the folks I work with are these CEO roundtables where I put a, like six to eight CEOs together. I meet with them a couple of times, really help them figure out the strategy. I, I will say this, most scaling challenges come back to the leader right? It's who they are, how they work, things they get hung up on, assumptions they've made. And and 90% of my work is just clearing up the headspace of a leader to help them get themselves figured out and straight and aligned and decided. And then it's so much easier to align the rest of the company and how they're going to grow. Um, that is most of the work that I'm doing right now. And once we do that, we can we do all the strategic framework work in terms of figuring out how we're going to scale and get the company to a couple hundred million. And not that that's easy, but it's easier sometimes than the headspace issue. Got you. And uh, one last, last small question, but I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, so you are writing for Inc.com. Um, yeah. What do you think are cool articles or where are you looking at uh, producing new content in which direction for them or with mm. them or with this type of publications? Well, so when I write for Inc., I'm trying to find these little, little nuggets. Honestly, the way I create my Inc. articles is through the conversations I'm having with leaders. Right, so I have a conversation with somebody and they bring up a question, a comment, something I'm like, oh yeah, it's a good question. I would probably do it this way or here's an idea. I'm like, oh, all right, I'm gonna write an article on that. And I'll actually send ink articles to the people that inspired them and say, hey, you know what? I was thinking about our conversation, decided to write a piece and they love it. That's what, it's a great, it's a great way. But it's a great source of content because I know that, hey, look, if one person's thinking about this, the chances are there's other people thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So uh, going into the strategy direction now with them or uh, digital or just depending on what comes and what's exciting at a certain point? Yeah, so I, I, I look at all facets of the business. We look at people, strategy, execution, cash. I look at core frameworks. I look at uh, you know, fundamentals, values, culture, uh, because in the end of the day, the, 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 the constraints in a company are going to shift around. Uh, and for a time, it might be strategy, and then it might be cash, and then it might be your culture, and then it might be talent. Like, a, And I need to be well-versed in all these different facets to figure out, advise a CEO on how they're going to grow on scale. And he or she needs to know like lots of different things. That's that's the challenge of going from founder to CEO. As a CEO, is a generalist that's coordinating activities against a strategic plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a, not a lot of people make that shift effectively into CEO mode out of out of founder mode. Okay, (laughs) nice. I'm going to keep following you and uh, you guys as well. Uh, Make sure you follow Bruce on the social platforms as well. You have all the links in the description below. And Bruce, until next time, this was an amazing chat. Thanks a lot for making the time. I know you are a very busy man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a big pleasure. Looking forward to speaking soon.